Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present the 100th episode of Who Killed with special guest Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast. Growing impatient, the Cleveland Press runs an editorial urging police to take action against the prime suspect. Four days later, a front-page editorial increases pressure on the police. The following day, the press devotes most of its front page to the case. An editorial addressed directly to the county coroner, Dr. Gerber, urges an immediate inquest. The next day, an inquest begins. I jumped off the couch and ran upstairs. I thought I saw a white form standing in our bedroom. Then I think I was struck from behind and knocked out. When I came to, I went over to where Marilyn was. I felt she was gone. I believe I then rushed into our son Chip's room. After seeing him, I came to the conclusion he was unharmed. As I came out of Chip's room, I thought I heard a noise downstairs. I spotted a figure near the outside door, and I chased it down the path toward the beach. Growing impatient, the Cleveland Press runs an editorial urging police to take action against the prime suspect. Four days later, a front-page editorial increases pressure on the police. The following day, the press devotes most of its front page to the case. An editorial addressed directly to the county coroner, Dr. Gerber, urges an immediate inquest. The next day, an inquest begins. Newspapers headline Coroner Gerber's theory that the murder weapon was a surgical instrument. This theory, never proved but widely publicized, is damaging to Dr. Shepard. Meanwhile... All of Cleveland awaits an answer to the question that has gone unanswered for three months. Who, in the early morning hours of July 4th, murdered Marilyn Shepard? Was it her husband, Sam Shepard, as the state charges? Or was it a mysterious, bushy-haired intruder, as claimed by Dr. Shepard? We, the jury in this case, being duly impaneled and sworn, do find the defendant, Sammy Shepard, not guilty of murder in the first degree, but guilty of murder in the second degree, James C. Bird Foreman. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and of course, this is a slow burn media podcast. Thank you so much to all of you guys for listening and supporting us to get to this point. It's an honor to bring you guys a new show each and every week. On last week's episode, I gave you the timeline and the nuts and bolts of the murder of Marilyn Shepard, along with the media sensation surrounding the trial of her husband, Sam. On this week's episode, I have the one and only Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast to break down the Shepard case. We will discuss the suspects, the trial, 
the wrestling career, as well as some of the more sensational aspects of the murder of Marilyn Shepard. We will discuss whether we think Richard Eberlein is a good suspect, as well as whether or not we think Sam was involved. And to recap, the murder of Marilyn Shepard happened on the night of July 3rd, 1954, after a night of hosting friends for dinner and cocktails. Sam said he got into a confrontation with a bushy-haired man shortly after midnight, and that he was knocked out not once, but twice, as he chased the man down the shores of Lake Erie. Sam became a media magnet. He was good-looking, affluent, and a doctor. Marilyn was beautiful, and she was a homemaker, as well as taught Bible lessons at the local Methodist church. Once the press got a hold of the case, they were off and running. Daily headlines called for Sam's arrest. And again, that did not help the prosecution, at least in the end, and gave no chance of Sam being acquitted. So the case turned out to be, at the time, the longest trial in American history. The murder of Marilyn Shepard and the eventual acquittal of Sam served as the inspiration for the 1960s television show The Fugitive, and then into an Academy Award-winning movie starring the one and only Harrison Ford. Nobody other than Sam was taken to trial for the murder of his wife and the mother of their son, Chip. This is one of the reasons the case still fascinates not only the community, but the country. Who killed Marilyn Shepard? So let's get into my conversation with Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast and see if we can't talk this out. I am very lucky to have Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast on this very special 100th episode of Who Killed. He has been a mentor along the way, and uh, I really do appreciate him joining me on many episodes. And I know that he has a little bit of knowledge about the case that we are discussing. And again, that's the case of Who Killed Marilyn Shepard. Nick, thanks again for joining me. Good morning, Bill. You are lucky to have me. I'm not as lucky. I'm lucky to be on your show and be talking with you on this beautiful morning. However, this is a very difficult case to to really kind of figure out who actually did this. And I listened to part one, and you did a fantastic job of laying out everything, all of the, the bits of knowledge that everybody needs to know going into this case. And for the younger listeners, one thing that they may not be able to fully grasp when looking at this case is this case was was huge. This was big, big news. And I liken this case to the John Bonet Ramsey case. It really shares a lot of similarities when you start to think about it. We have a case where they're basically trying someone in the public eye and in the newspapers and through the media. And we have a similar situation where you're left at the end of the day going, okay, this is a brutal homicide. It's still unsolved 65 years later. And we're, we're left going, okay, was it an intruder or was it someone inside the home that killed this woman? And of course the, the family itself is polarizing just as the Ramsey's were. I mean, we're talking about people that are fairly well-to-do. And back in 1950s, this is the handsome young doctor. He's married to the beautiful young woman. They got the perfect life from the outside. And when you peel back the curtain and you look inside, you, you figure out that things are not so perfect as they rarely are in most homes throughout America. And Shepard is a, um, 
well, he, he's a skirt chaser and he's probably not that great of a, um, of a husband and a, and a family man. And we have this situation where from the, from the very onset of it, it looks pretty cut and dried where, okay, there must've been some kind of argument. There must've been some kind of blow up between these two things got violent. Shepard lost his cool flew off the handle and beat Maryland to death. And now he's got to cover this thing up, but it's just not that simple. Is it when you, when you dive into this case, when you go through Shepard's story of what happened that night, when you, when you overlap that with what the neighbors say with their, what their friends said that were visiting that night. And then we have, the son, Chip, as well, who who hears nothing, sees nothing, the only other person in the home. And he, he, for the rest of his life, fights for his father's good name to clear his father's name in the murder of his mother. It's, it's truly a fascinating case. And I understand why it has not been solved all of these years later, although it's been it's been tried many times. Yeah, you know, and it it is very interesting the the whole media aspect and how much of the media played a role in this case. And you know, obviously there's parallels between this case, the trial and the OJ Simpson trial, especially with the similarities considering F. Lee Bailey was a part of both uh both cases. And you know, that goes to say something about his longevity. Uh but nonetheless, the reason for this case, I think, for be- not being solved also is I, I talked about it in early part of the episode in part one about how basically everybody was able to just wander through the house and disturb the crime scene before it was even, you know, closed to the public or clo- I mean, there were neighbors walking through. There were authorities, reporters, uh, reporters. I mean, I mean was- yeah. This was not a clean crime scene as far as, as that goes. And, and it was um, brutal. It was a brutal homicide. And throughout the, 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 the battle, you know, if, if we are to believe Dr. Shepard's story of what went down that night when he woke up and discovered his wife was being brutally attacked, and then he has to, he has to fight this man, and he's knocked out, knocked unconscious twice, Um, If we are to believe his story, well, then that crime scene, that home and on down to the, the beach area, that's all incredibly important to investigators. However, now you have everybody and their brother stepping all over your crime scene and there should have been things, there should have been clues and evidence within that crime scene to really point us in one direction or the other, because the, the the two possibilities are are very different from one another and uh, there there's a big difference in a crime scene having there been a a fourth person in that home um as you said this is a brutal attack there should be evidence of that individual inside that home and then when you put all these other yahoos in there well that just convolutes the whole the whole mess altogether yeah i mean it basically throws fingerprint evidence out the window and if you think about it, the, one of the most interesting aspects of of the murder itself is Chip was like six feet from the bedroom where Marilyn was killed. And 
for as awful as a murder as it was, I don't know how we couldn't have heard the murder taking place. It's just that I don't know. I don't know. It's it's something that's very difficult to wrap your head around that that Chip would not have woke up at some point during this attack, regardless of who the attacker was. Right. And yet it, it appears that he did not. And I don't have any reason to not believe him. And I find it in very much in Sam Shepard's favor, Dr. Shepard's favor that Chip spent a good majority of his life trying to clear his father's name. Yeah. I mean, I remember growing up, you know, in the nineties, basically, I think in 1989 is when Sam Jr. Stepped forward and basically started fighting for his dad's, you know, name to be cleared. And so all through the nineties, I remember that that being one of the headline stories on the local news, basically you know anytime something came up and i think it was in 96 that they started reinvestigating the case and it's just you know the whole the fact that okay so 1996 that's 42 years after the murder and we already know that within 48 hours it's already tough to solve a crime it's imagine you know it's hard to imagine 42 years and uh and that's what, you know, we run into that with a lot of cold cases, I think. And I think that's why a lot of cold cases don't get solved is because people just obviously don't remember, die, memories fade. It just is what it is. And the thing that stands out the most to me about this case is his story about, you know, fighting with this bushy haired man and the fact that he was knocked out twice. And I think that I just don't know. I mean, is that even possible? <laughs> Well, I'm not a doctor. I know you went to school for computer. So, you know, I don't I guess I guess it's possible. So my little understanding of concussions come from the NFL and everything they've taught us about the dangers of concussions and such. And one thing that I learned from um, reviewing their process and, and the information they've put out over the years is that. Once you've had one concussion, the second and third and fourth concussion are they're that much easier to get. Um, so it's it's a um, and therein lies the problem. And that's why you see with like the NFL where they'll make they'll make a, a player sit out for next week or a period of weeks because they're worried that you just bump this guy on the head. He might get another one real quick. So. That is my limited understanding of, of that situation. But one thing that's that's bizarre in this case, and this case is unique for so many different reasons, and I think we'll go through, let's go through some of that right now. First, the first thing that you see after you get past the, the crime scene, the, the contaminated crime scene with everybody stepping all over the place and um, putting their fingers all over the place. You know, we should also point out this is the fifties and back then fingerprint evidence was considered the way we could talk about DNA evidence today. It was that um, damning back then. And um, so, so that's the, the first hurdle. And then the second hurdle is such a unique situation where, you know, we still hold doctors, in, in high regard and in high esteem, but even more so back then, 
and you you were almost locally famous, you know, famous at the local level if you were the, the doctor or the surgeon in town. Sure. And ev- everybody knew you were the doctor. Yeah, my grandfather was was the was a urologist and on the west side of Cleveland in the 1950s. So And everywhere he went people <clears throat> probably called him doctor. That that's oh, who yeah. they knew him Doc- to be. Dr. Huffman. <laughs> and so back then especially you have uh you have officers who are interviewing a, a guy that they consider to be a suspect but also somebody that they hold in high regard that they have a certain level of respect for. And so there's that imbalance of inferiority going on, but then let's go ahead and compound that with the fact that you're going to interview this man because he, he may be a victim himself Mm -hmm. and he has sustained several injuries, regardless if he got them from fighting off Maryland's attacker or if he got them from killing his wife. Yeah. Cause he was injured. Yes, he he was phys- he was physically and visibly injured. It was um, there's no doubting that. So they take him to be treated for his injuries, and we're going to interview him while he's being treated or shortly after being treated for these injuries. Well, where is that questioning the the initial questioning going to take place at a hospital where this guy's going to feel comfortable because he's a doctor? But let's oh. It's the hospital he works at. Oh, it's the hospital that his family owns. He's got brothers and a father that work there as well. So yep, this is not an interrogation or questioning this man under the hot lights in some, in some dark, uh, you know, uh, smoky police room at the, at the station down at the, you know, let's take him down to the station and grill this guy. No, this is, this dude is lying in a hospital bed. He's giving his side of the story and he's, he's seen- sedated. He's sedated. Um, we should all be sedated, uh, but <laughs> the, the um, to say. <laughs> <laughs> given the current state of affairs, <laughs> um, but not only that, this dude is he's he's the king of the ring at this hospital, right? It, he's mm-hmm. he's in there being treated like a king nurses coming in and out while he's giving his uh, account of what's going on and, you know, uh, tending to his every need. And then he goes off into this very doctor scientific type speak when he's giving his account of what went down that night. It's almost like he's writing an entry in some kind of an article for like a medical journal or something. And and so when the public views Shepard's point of view and account of what went down, they're not going to be able to identify with this. And and that's that also becomes an issue here for Shepard and for the case itself. If he is a victim, if his wife was murdered inside their home by, by an intruder, then this man is a victim. However, he is not likable to the public. Mm-mm. There's nobody outside of his son and his immediate family that are saying Sam didn't do this. Shepard didn't do this. No, the general public are going, this guy cheat was cheating on his wife. Uh, he, he, he put on the, the, the front of a, a do-gooder of a healer of somebody who, who takes care of the community. And in reality, he's a bad guy. He's a bad husband. If you cheat on your wife, you cheat on anything. And, that that is it makes him not likable it makes him not identifiable with the with the general public and then you know what 
sells newspapers better than anything. I mean, okay, box scores sell newspapers, elections sell newspapers, but even better than that, especially for longevity, Mm -hmm. Jack the Ripper, Zodiac, the Unabomber, those guys sold a hell of a lot of newspapers. And still sell a lot of books about them. I mean, the paper that there's still books written about Jack the Ripper every year. I mean, that case is 120 years old. And this case became big, big news. And guess what that meant? A lot of newspapers being sold in the the Cleveland area. We had two newspapers at the time. We had the Cleveland Press and the Cleveland Plain Dealer and evening editions as well. And now their headlines are being broadcast throughout the country. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, these are two of the biggest papers in the the country as far as what people want to know, what people want to, to hone in on. And they really latched on to this idea of Shepard being the number one suspect. And they kept telling and pushing and pushing. Why aren't they questioning this guy? Why haven't they arrested this guy? Why haven't, hasn't there not been an inquest to the point where it, it, it's, they're almost like they're pacing it out over a period of weeks to keep stringing along the readers. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and they don't have Shepard's best interest in, at oh. heart. They don't, they don't give a shit about the investigation at the end of the day, either. Their job is to sell newspapers and they did a brilliant job of pacing this thing out over several weeks to to string along these readers and these buyers to the, to where it led up to the, the climax of the do it now, Dr. Gerber, you know, they're, they're screaming it from the mountaintops. Let's have an inquest. And when you didn't have to read between the lines to understand they weren't screaming for an inquest. That's the PC thing to do. Mm-hmm. Let's call we we demand an inquest. No, you didn't have to read between the lines to understand they were calling for his arrest to arrest Dr. Shepard, try him, lock him up, throw away the key, and let's forget about this guy and let him rot away in some cold cell for the rest of his life. Yeah. And again, the press, this is really when, you know, obviously I think you had the the Lindenberg baby trial that that was that was the biggest trial before this trial and this is the first time i think the press really gets held to to task for basically being overzealous and Mm. (laughs) basically screwing up the investigation as far as focusing in on one individual and like you said you know every day they would ramp it up and i talked about it last week about how it was like every other day would be a headline about why isn't he arrested or why isn't he questioned? And then the statement that you just asked or said about why isn't there an inquest? And guess what? There was an inquest the next day. And it's like, and you mentioned the, the Cleveland press and the plane dealer being broadcast all across the country at that point. And yeah, nationally now the New York times is running stuff. The daily news, the post, the Chicago tribune. I mean, it's, everywhere and it's a media circus i mean they called it a media carnival right so i mean it's 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 really it's it's a shame it's a stain on the press for a to a degree because they really were the ones that made that singular focus and we always talk about how the police focus you know on one suspect and that blinds them to others potential suspects and you cannot disagree that the papers were doing the same exact thing right i mean it 
isn't that what they were basically doing? They were trying to steer this investigation to just convict him. Well, it's it's shoddy and uh, dishonest journalism at the end of the day, but it but it's sold it's, newspapers. <laughs> it's wonderful for the reader, right? True. That's your customer. It, it's like a daily soap opera that you're going to tune into. Oh man, I can't wait for tomorrow's paper to pick it up and figure out it, it, it did did Doctor Sam do this? You know, people people want to know for themselves whether it's going to be tried or not. They want to they want to be able to read the facts. They want to be able to tear through the case and sip their morning coffee and get up. And when they go off to their job that day, they want to they want to go, you know what? All right, I got something to talk to old Jim about at the water cooler. I'm pretty certain the shepherd guy's guilty, and that's because the uh the local media has told me so. But um it's a fascinating case from that angle and to see how it played out in the papers, even though they were, I mean, they were really force feeding it to us at, by that point. And then you have a judge, the first judge takes a look at this thing and says, there's not really much here, um, you know, and, and, and I've, I've heard the the statements and, and read that, that, that there was quote unquote, nothing, you know, no evidence against Shepard. And I, I don't know that that is the full story. Um, who knows? It's, it's really hard to say. I'm guessing that a judge is looking this, at this thing and going, there might be something here, but, but we, we got one shot at this. And if, if, you know, he's there to represent the, the community and uphold the law and the laws that we have put into place. And a judge does not want a mistrial that, I mean, that, that goes against everything they're supposed to do and does not want something brought before their court that has no business being there yet. That's, that's not ready one way or another. Right. And I mean, you notice that they release him, you know, on bail because like you said, they didn't have anything. So quote unquote. Uh, but again, he gets indicted the next day for murder hmm. and is arrested and then isn't released until his acquittal. 10 years later um you know it's really interesting to think about how the first trial okay you know one of the things that stood out was all the media obviously the first three or four rows of the courtroom were all dedicated to media they had this huge table with all of sam's lawyers i mean he had the means and the money and the power to fight this case but again with the public's uh access to the press and all the articles that they were writing i mean the jury wasn't sequestered no i mean if you think about a failure as as a judge in the biggest trial of the century at this point you don't sequester the jury and not only that you have the jury get interviewed by reporters as well as they they're never even questioned about what they know about the case or have heard about the case after certain broadcasts have been made. I think that's a complete failure on the judge's part. And what the, what, I mean, they, it's like they were purposely doing that. It's like they were turning a blind eye. Ah, you know, <laughs> though they won't listen to that stuff. Well, and then that when at the end of the day, that's when as a community, you stand up and you say, you know what, we don't care for this. So we're not going to reelect, um, you know, these people that, that, that have 
flawed our system. But he the system won re-election. <laughs> right. Well, right. Again, but but the people had the power to make sure that that didn't happen. <laughs> um, and, and the thing is, that's the power of the press, especially back in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. You, if you had the press on your side as someone who's seeking election, you almost had the thing in the bag, right? right? And so why not dedicate the first three rows to the media? Why not give them carte blanche to, to do what, what they will with the, with your trial. And, um, they turned the courtroom, I mean, the whole courthouse into basically a media empire. I mean, they, right. they were broadcasting radio, television, uh, you know, obviously newspapers were being, stories were being written there and, you know, telegraphed or whatever, but, you know, back in the day. And that was the whole courthouse just inundated with reporters. And again, it cannot be harped on enough that the jury wasn't sequestered. I mean, anybody in their right mind, if they were on the jury, why wouldn't they pick up the newspaper and read it? I mean, they're looking at something else in the newspaper regardless. How could they avoid the front page? This week's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Working as a true crime podcaster, I research some dark subjects. And when I need to brighten my day, I turn to Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a puzzle game you can play right on your phone. And it's truly a great game. You will have a mindful experience as you traverse through all the different levels while facing challenging puzzles. But Best Fiends is a fun, casual game that anyone can play. I'm definitely not an expert, but I've been moving through these levels pretty quickly. And one of the best parts is Best Fiends updates monthly. So there's new levels and events, so it will always stay fresh. Best Fiends won't take up much of your time, but what it will do it will help you stay in touch with the friends and family, all while still social distancing. And another great feature, you don't even need an internet connection to play. The game has a gorgeous design, and I find that it helps relax my mind. Plus, the cute characters just make it all the better. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. I've had to deal with my fair share of anxiety and depression in my life, and I'm happy to say that there is now an easy way to get help. Because if there is something that interferes with your happiness or is holding you back from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can now connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's convenient because it needs to be in our hectic lives. So go get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And guess what? If you aren't happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. There are even apps available for your computer or smartphone. So whether you're suffering from anxiety, depression, anger, stress, relationship issues, sleeping, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, or self-esteem, they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. The best part is, it's a truly affordable option. 
Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com slash WHO. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to BetterHelp.com slash WHO. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we did We actually did a talk on this uh, case a few years ago back at the uh, Ohio Crime and Corruption event at the uh, Ohio Historic Society, I believe is the, it, it's changed its name over the years. So I get confused on, I think it's the History Society. But, but That's one uh, of the reasons, that's one of the, you told me that before. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on to discuss this case, because I knew that you had done that talk. It was a fascinating day at the uh history society they they provided a, a lot of uh, photographs and newspaper clippings from the time period that people were able to view and look at before we gave our little talk our true crime garage talk uh there in one of the auditoriums and they even had a um uh nutshell diagram or, or constructed of the the house the layout mm-hmm. of the house sure. itself with with furniture and everything and it was really fascinating to be able to hold that up and, and show the people in the audience and point and say you know this is where Marilyn was this is where the son was sleeping this is where uh sam says that he fell asleep on the the day bed and you can see that the their guests left through um, the front door. There's some question if if the door was locked or not. There's different. Um, it was a different time and place. Right, and it's but a there safe was, area too. Well, even more so though, there were different statements about the the door being locked. Some who had said the door was locked, and then others who said that the door was not locked. Um, regardless, the interesting thing though too is you were able to really take a look at the the blood spatter evidence and that is where a lot of this case i mean those are there are truths in there that cannot be denied when you look at that room and the the simplest way to explain this to someone that may not not fully understand is this poor woman was basically brutally beaten as she's she's on the bed and when when whoever her attacker was an intruder or Dr. Shepard, as they're striking her, when they when they pull back up the weapon to strike again is when you're going to get cast off and that's going to create blood spatter. And you can actually view that room and determine where the attacker was when they were striking her at certain points during the attack based off of where blood spatter did not end up behind the individual at all it almost you can almost uh envision an outline or 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 a a shadow or silhouette of the killer themselves off of the wall based around where the blood spatter goes and so there are some truths in there now keep in mind this is 1954 so science had not caught up to this case yet and I, i really feel like had this whatever went down that night on the on the shores of Lake Erie that had that happened in 2010 2015 or last night we would have a whole entirely different outcome and i think 
much much quicker too. We would we would have been led to a much uh, to a conclusion much quicker than well, we never we never did get a conclusion. I guess in this case, so yeah. And and you look back at that case and you think about 1954 and what the investigators had to work with, and you know, really it was fingerprint evidence and maybe blood typing, but it, again, it was. Uh, very 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 early on in the days of detectives and uh investigating murders and they didn't know what to look for whereas in 2010 and now we've had plenty of examples of people who have lied and if you know if there would have been an experienced interrogator from today interviewing sam in 1954 if he would have done if he was the killer he would have been arrested probably that that same day in my opinion correct correct if if he was if i mean if yeah and and it, yeah it's it's difficult to say but but yeah i agree i think the outcome would be completely different well it goes to show you too when his second trial comes around and you know he's acquitted well or Let's see. He's acquitted and not acquitted. He's released. And then they appeals appeals court votes two to one to reinstate his conviction. But they allow him to stay off, you know, out of jail on bail. And his trial lasts only a month compared to the, you know, six month or four month ordeal that he had gone through before. And then he's found not guilty. And. When, well, that's because whether he's guilty or not, that's because you have Effley Bailey there. I mean, when uh, when Corgan died, Bailey took over. Yeah. And so <laughs> you don't have to like the guy. I don't care if you think that he's that he's putting killers out on the streets or not. At the end of the day, his job is to defend people who are being tried for heinous crimes. And whether you think OJ did it or not, um, I, I have a shirt. True Crime Garage has a shirt that says OJ did it. So the, the, you know where I stand on that. But um, Effley Bailey is a brilliant, brilliant man. I mean, he is the the Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson of his profession. True. And and it would have taken Michael Jordan or the Magic Johnson of their profession to get OJ Simpson off. And he was part of that dream team yeah. that 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 helped with that and then in this case we have a young Effley Bailey who's really um making a name for himself and he did a lot of things at that trial that had not been done before you know the discussing of blood evidence and such and it was trial by press and it was also there there was also some worry about that right like oh you don't want to make this this trial too complicated for the jurors so that they can't even understand what you're, what you're saying. But um, at the end of the day, it's conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. And so who cares if you make it too confusing for the, the juries to understand you're probably at a better off point from a defense standpoint, if they are confused, because if they, if they are confused, it's difficult for them to say beyond a reasonable doubt, this man killed uh, his wife. Right. And that, then you go back to the first trial. Okay. They, they have in the papers that this woman has a baby mm -hmm. 
out of wedlock, has an affair with Dr. Sam Shepard, and, and now they're having a baby, and then we find out, well, that that's that, not even true. No, no not, not even true. No truth to that. She just wanted to be part of the story. Um, Shocking. I mean, you know what? I, I, I really wonder at the end of the day, you know, this, this trial by 12, the jurors, I wonder if you, if you lined them up, it did, did, did just one person out of that 12 go guilty because of that, that, uh, affair, that fake affair that, that did not happen. Um, well, he had other affairs, so there was plenty of reason to true, dislike true. him as a person. So yeah, people have personal, uh, Nobody's doubting that, but this is the one that was in the paper. Yeah, the they time, broadcast the and they broadcast the- it and stuff. And it was like, uh, is there any legitimacy to this? Not one bit. And there was also like, I mean, they would talk about how it was Marilyn was killed with a uh, a surgical tool. Mm-hmm. And, which is not true. Which is 100% false. Right. And was never brought up in trial. Again, right. broadcast and I mean, broadcast and published in the newspapers. There's every indication from from what I've reviewed over the years in this case that she would have been killed with with maybe more than one object, but it was very likely something in the room with her, maybe a lamp or something that was heavy in the room with her or a, and or a flashlight that would one could easily come to the conclusion that the the intruder brought with them to to but, but yet they never found a murder weapon. Correct. Correct. Very interesting. And then, you know, F. Lee Bailey does does his magic. And I do want people to know that I'm going to put a I've got a 15 minute interview with him from the I think 1964, either. I think it was before the retrial or whatever. But it, it's very interesting. It's like 15 minutes and I'm going to play it at the end of this episode. So definitely take a listen to it. But once he was acquitted, the fact that you know, again, he was a huge national story. He's on Johnny Carson a week after. Mm. A week yeah. after. A week after his acquittal. He was a he was a international celebrity at this point. And I, you know, I mentioned in the first episode, I think, about how, you know, there was some connection between him and the fugitive, the show and the movie. And, you know, I've had people on Twitter say that, no, that was just a coincidence. And it's like, well, if it was the biggest story in the world, even if the writer said it was not true or it was a coincidence, it was still subconsciously influenced by this trial. I mean, give me a break. And uh, you think about what he went through after he was acquitted. I mean, he became a pro wrestler. Well, yeah. And so, yeah, it's. And married and married one of, let's see he married Ariane Tabahones, who she's, she's one degree away from being de- a Nazi. She's doing, she went to Hitler's Nazi youth camps and then she tried to sell a book about their life together. And apparently shocking, the New York publishers weren't interested because she went on to say that the Hitler youth camps were similar to the boy Scouts and the girl Scouts. Well, and, you know, in your defense there, Bill, um, one of my favorite authors, Thomas Harris, has said, and he's he's a uh, fiction, a fictional author. And he says that 
everything that he writes is true. Meaning, yes, these are their stories that he has created, but there, there are truths in them. There, there are, they stem from true real life stories that, that were either in the paper or um, crimes that actually happened. And so in retaliation to that, I, I can't speak much to the TV show, the fugitive, I've probably only seen bits and pieces of it. And yeah, I mean, I haven't watched it. It was, 1960s right and but but the movie itself the 1993 movie the fugitive great movie there's no way that it doesn't have some it's not based off haired man the yeah the guy's a doctor an intruder kills his wife for an unbeknownst reason it's a you know there's a conspiracy involved at the end of the day but one of my favorite scenes in that movie and one of my favorite scenes of out of any like uh crime movie crime thriller movie is uh the the part where um tommy lee jones almost catches up i know exactly this part to harrison ford yeah and harrison ford turns and looks at him and he says i didn't kill my wife and tommy lee jones goes i don't care and because you know Tommy Lee Jones's job is just to bring the man in. The guy's a fugitive and and he he's not there to try him to to put 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 the doctor on trial and to figure out if the guy did it or not. No, he's just tasked with with apprehending him. And uh it, it's brilliant piece of uh, of film because it's the two characters at their at their purest, at their at when you scrape everything away this is a man who has been wrongfully convicted face to face with a man who's trying to apprehend him. And the man that apprehends him, all he cares about at the end of the day is bringing this guy in, whether he did it or not. So that was a brilliant movie, but um, back to, to the case. Did you, when, when you were reviewing this, did you find, and we talked about murder weapon there for, for a minute. Did you find any obvious statements or any obvious conclusion that that anything was missing from the home other than what was believed to have been quote unquote stolen or 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 um or I made to look like it was saw stolen? something about uh fire pokers or a fire poker that was discovered at the Hawks house uh but that was in 1982 and I don't know if that came from the Shepherd house I would have to double check on that um so the hawks if that in so fact the, were the murder weapon the hawks ended up with the murder weapon and, and yeah. they were just fine with that for so, years so yeah it's it's interesting um step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply so like cleveland state has all of sam shepherd's stuff like they donated all of all of the uh you know whatever uh all the trial transcripts and all that other stuff to the school and i'm gonna say that let's see um yeah i mean it, it was one of those things i never really saw exactly where they were where 
you know, where they found that, where they found the uh, fire poker. Mm-hmm. But I know it was, I mean, I know it was at the house. I just don't know if it belonged to the, um, to Sam. And I know that he was looked at as a possible suspect. I mean, that, that we know. Because that was one of the possibilities that they brought up as he was possibly having an affair with Marilyn and that's why Sam or I don't know. No, it was Sam was having an affair with Spencer's wife. 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 Yeah, that was the rumor. But again, rumor, innuendo. That's really all this case was really built about. So great. Another case where we have an unsolved murder and they find a fire poker years hmm. after the fact. Hmm. That <laughs> and, sounds like, that sounds awfully familiar. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, this is a difficult case to come to a conclusion. Obviously we have I, owls, <laughs> right? Um, but I, I will say this as far as the intruder theory goes in this case, it is an ideal home for someone to break into for mm-hmm. several reasons. One, we, we talked about how it, it backs up to Lake Erie. Um, the, the layout of the property itself, if you were to enter that home in the middle of the night from, from, the, from the rear of the home, it's very unlikely that you're going to have anyone neighbors or otherwise see you come and go from that house. So from that standpoint, from a, from a criminal, a criminal mind standpoint, the house, if you're looking to burglarize, this is an ideal house. This is an ideal neighborhood for that because you're talking, you're going to find items of value because of the neighborhood, because of the, these are upper class people. Mm-hmm. And, it's, it's easy. You can, you can, you're, you're cloaked under the cover of, of night and the, the layout of the property itself. And just the fact that there's no one living behind them. And yeah, then if I mean, you take it, a, take it a step further, say they never found a murder weapon. Well, what, what, what does a guy that, that intends to burglarize a home in the middle of the night bring with them for their adventure, their, their excursion? a right. flashlight uh-huh. and if it, if he has to use it to beat somebody to death with once he's inside the home he's going to take it with him when he leaves and there there is probably the simplest answer as to why you didn't find a murder weapon now you can also take that a step further and say well sam shepherd was no idiot he was no uh moron <laughs> i like to say uh, and he probably you know he could have beat his wife and then then thrown the uh murder weapon in Lake Erie for all we know. Uh, but there were items that were, were removed from the house who removed them. We can't say 100% certain, but they were removed from the home. They were found outside of the home. It's believed that maybe these items were, were, were dropped by the burglar after the, the scuffle with Shepard outside possible. Uh, also thought that maybe they, hid them to try to come back and retrieve them at another time is always a possibility. Then we have the weird situation of, of a piece of her jewelry. I believe it was her ring that um, this character it's found in his possession. Yeah. That... Marilyn Shepard's ring is found in uh, who was it? Eberling. Richard Eberling. 
And there is some thought that he, he may have stole that from like, so that sounds like a very damning piece of evidence. Right. But I think if I remember this correctly and correct me, if I'm wrong here, Bill, like mm-hmm. I said, it's been a couple of years, but if I remember correctly, that the story behind that, that ring, that stolen ring, it's actually believed that he stole it from her sister, from Marilyn Shepard's sister. It was at a, at a later date. It wasn't stolen that night when, when Marilyn was attacked. Right. Exactly. It sounds like, you know, it sounded like, oh, you know, he took it from there, but I think it was actually, he took it from her, bro- uh, from Sam's brother. Sam's brother. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking about how he could have thrown the, um, and we were just talking about the murder weapon. So according to uh, famoustrials.com, the three months after, and this is July 1955, so Sam's already been convicted. uh, And so it's a year after the murder, a swimmer who lived next to the Shepherd home, quote, found a dented flashlight not a surgical instrument in the shallow water in Lake Erie. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And look, there's a million ways that that flashlight could have ended up in Lake Erie. Of course. It could have come from any number of people. Could have come Um, from Sam. Could have come from Sam. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and you think about, again, I always talk about this, this particular case, you know, about trial by media and, you know, it's interesting that the publisher of the Cleveland Press actually wrote in his autobiography, talked about how, you know, how strong of a role he played in bringing Shepard to justice. And it's, uh, you know, it's crazy. And and you think about all the tragedy that surrounded the family. You know, I think Sam's dad killed himself. Marilyn's dad killed himself. Or no, Sam's mother killed himself, but Sam, uh, Marilyn's dad killed himself, and then Sam's dad died like a year after he was convicted. It, some it was, of them were uh, dealing with with uh, ailments, though, right? Weren't some of them dealing with some pretty severe health issues? You, well, um, Marilyn's father was significantly, okay. but the other uh, oh, not oh, gosh, I keep screwing that up. It's Sam's father that was had the real issues, and then. Sam's mom killed herself in a motel somewhere in Cleveland. So interesting. Hmm. And uh, yeah, they actually grew up, you know, not grew up, but where Sam lived after his trial is about two miles from where I live. And it the townhouses that he's interviewed in front of in one of the AP videos, it's like this, they look exactly the same, the townhomes. It's just, it's so bizarre how close this is to, again, another Bay Village story, another unsolved murder, uh, and another international or national mystery. Well, and I think that Shepard eventually moved down to my Colum- neck of the woods, to mm-hmm. Columbus in, in a, a small area that we call German Village. And that was so he could somewhat practice medicine again i think that is correct yeah and then because good luck having any clientele up up in northeast ohio after. yeah because columbus is so far away that you right. would not know about sam shepherd no, that's true <laughs> so final thoughts nick i know that you are uh 
on a time uh, restraint today. So um, any final thoughts that you have on the Shepard case and whether or not you think you can make a definitive well, conclusion? I, I don't know that I can make a conclusion, uh, judge, jury, executioner style here, but uh, I would... I would find it very difficult to to put a, a guilty verdict if I were a jury member in either of those trials. I I don't see enough here to convict this man. And in fact, I I if I had to choose gun to my head, I would think I go with the intruder theory that I think that uh it's more likely that that there was an intruder and, and I understand that the presented the percentages and the statistics tell us that Sam Shepard probably, you know, more likely than not was the killer. But I go back to the, the son and, you know, he didn't wake up. Some have to wonder, well, maybe he did wake up and maybe when, when he saw who was killing his mother, it was his father. And, but then if you're going to go that angle, really think of, really think about that for a second, because right. I've heard people try to apply that to this case. What, what it would be his motive all those years later to stand by his father and, and not hate his father. If, if in fact he did see his father kill his mother, it, it makes no sense at the end of the day. And that's not what happened. That didn't happen. And, and so I, I see a situation where we have three people in the home and unfortunately the, this woman is brutally attacked. There is some question too about sexual assault mm -hmm. in this case. And I, when we want to talk about statistics and apply those to, you know, solved case statistics to this unsolved case, if we want to apply that and, and, and say, Hey, what is the likelihood? What are the percentages here comparing Sam Shepard as prime suspect to the intruder theory? If in fact there was a sexual assault, then the statistics go way down. The percentages go way down for the husband being the actual attacker. So again, it comes back to science and forensics and, and investigative tools and resources were not up to speed. They are not where they are today. And, uh, back in 1954 in the, you know, in the fifties, there are a lot of questions that would have become answers based off of, of what we're able to do today. Yeah. And I would say that when I first started looking into this case a while back, I went in with the, and I'm not going to lie. I went in with the belief that it was Sam and I, the more that I look at it, the more I listen to his interview the fact that he took a, okay so if if the story is real that he chased him down this intruder down the stairs to the beach that would follow up and basically uh uh what's the word i'm looking for uh help your side of the story about the person coming in from the back and knowing the back way and that's exactly what what i think could have happened is that's where you the way you came in well, why isn't that the way you're going to go out? Especially in, in haste. And when you're, when you're trying to now flee from someone who's trying to, to either apprehend you or attack you or, or what have you, you're going to go the route that you know. And, and we see that again, applying statistics very often the intruder will, will flee from the same 
uh, point of entry into the home. And look, at the end of the day, Richard Eberling is as good of a suspect as Dr. Sam Shepard. Eberling is it's a freaking, he's a freaking creep. He's our, mean, he, a convicted killer. He's a murderer. He's a creep. And he, you know, he fits some of the weird descriptions that people say they may have saw someone in the neighborhood that night. Um, you know, and it's interesting that you say, hey, you went into this thinking that Dr. Sam Shepard did kill Marilyn Shepard that night. And then you've kind of rethought that. And when you come out the other end of this, you're thinking much differently. When we gave our talk to that auditorium at the crime and corruption event, the Ohio crime and corruption event, there must have been, I would estimate, about 50, 60 people in the, in the audience. And we probably discussed the case for a good 45 minutes to an hour. And we did much like what you did last week, where we, we just started at the beginning, chronologically went through the whole thing. Um, we were able to go in depth with uh, Richard Eberling and some of the other things that Effley Bailey presented at trial um, as this case progressed. And at the end of, at the end of our talk, I asked for a little audience participation. I said, you know, I'm going to give you three options. And when I get to the option you like the best, I want you to raise your hand. And um, the options were Dr. Sam Shepard, Richard Eberling, or an unknown offender. And the one that got the most hands at the end of that talk was Richard Eberling. And so it's, it's, again, it would be very difficult based off of what we had, the knowledge that we had, the evidence that we had or did not have back then, it would be difficult for a, a conviction of Dr. Sam Shepard in my mind. I agree. And if I was on that trial jury, I would have probably voted to acquit because again, there was enough reasonable doubt and it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem right. And again, trial by media is not a way to make a conviction stand. And again, let's remember, it only took a month to find him not guilty the second trial. So, well, thanks again once once again, Bill, for having me on. It's always a pleasure to drink a couple cups of coffee with you and talk always. some true crime. For if there's anybody listening to uh, Who Killed that has not checked out True Crime Garage, check out our podcast, True Crime Garage. The this best. week, we just released two shows about uh, a strange disappearance of of two young men, two separate incidents down in Florida, and the last known person to see them was a uh, sheriff's deputy, the same sheriff's deputy. So very interesting case out of Florida that we covered this week. Next week, we got two different cases that we're going to cover on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then Bill, you're going to like this the following week. We are really taking a deep dive into some old Ohio cold cases. So check out true crime garage podcast, wherever you hear this wonderful podcast, who killed is the same place you can hear ours. And you can still get your catalog on Stitcher, right? Correct. And we're doing our very best to open it up to the world. But for now, uh, all the old episodes are available 100% free to anyone on the Stitcher app. All right. Nick, again, you're the man. Thanks so much for helping me get to episode 100. And I can't thank you enough for joining me. 
Congratulations, Bill. Um, I'm, I know I'll talk to you well before then, but uh, have me back on for episode 200. I'm no, yeah, we'll it. talk. We'll talk a few times before that, probably. But yeah, you take care of yourself. Thanks again so much. And I've always appreciate and I know the audience always appreciates your knowledge. So thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye. One more thing before I let you guys go on this case, and that is an interview with Ethley Bailey that was conducted in the 1960s while defending Sam against the media sensation that was his trial. And again, it's interesting if you are a member of the press or have worked in a job related to media and see how much the media can actually impact the trial of a certain individual. And I mean, we've all seen cases such as OJ, Casey Anthony, Scott Peterson, you name it. There's been a billion media sensational trials. Jody Arias comes to mind. And again, these are interesting because the press plays a big part in the public perception of who these individuals are. So take a listen. It's 15 minutes. And again, it's just interesting. And it's on the boot reporting from the 1960s. And again, the audio is a little wonky just because of the fact that it's old. But it's really interesting. And uh, enjoy, please. Yes, but uh, but uh, surely you wouldn't say indefinitely, even if it was a trivial offense, would you? No, there are some offenses on which you can quickly put a limitation. Perhaps it's a fine. Yeah. I, I say indefinitely as to anyone who may be a danger to society. These are the people that you're really complaining about. Yeah, yeah. So that, so that uh, ideally, then, each, each person would be treated uh, as an individual. And as a, an individual, he would be assi- assigned to... Uh, the proper kind of uh, reformatory, in effect, is what, it, what, it, what is involved, isn't it? Yes, and the proper kind of syllabus. Uh, <clears throat> just breaking up rocks for ten years doesn't really do much for a person. It probably does a great deal of damage. Breaks a lot of rocks, too. Yeah, it breaks a lot of rocks, but you can give a lot more efficient service out of a human being if you're going to put him in chains and to break rocks. And uh, This is what most of them do, something not much more productive. Well, uh, that... Th- that I think it's, it's completely understandable, as far as I'm concerned, completely uh, uh, commendable. Uh, even if the humanitarian uh, dimension were involved, the utilitarian one is. Obviously, Certainly. you're much better off getting somebody who commits a crime at age 20 and at age 30 is reformed and will lead a useful life rather sure. than using up your, uh, your wardens. But uh, uh, there is danger, of course, of a, a sentimentality creeping in which has the effect of always finding an excuse for every crime. And it seems to me that some professional defendants, I don't know you well enough to pass judgment on this, seem somehow always to be angling here. Is it your position that there are people who are just plain uh, evil in the sense that uh, they do not desire to curb their instincts and that under the circumstances, uh, uh, whatever it was that that caused them to become that way, Society does need, to, in its own defense, to isolate them. Well, putting aside for a moment the psychiatric problems, because that very murky science doesn't help us much as it goes around slapping labels such as sociopathic and schizophrenic and so forth, doesn't enable us to predict or cure the bad conduct. Um, nonetheless, the usual reason for the commission of a non-compulsive, non-obsessive crime and I put all the sex people over in that area, is because the individual thinks that this is the most successful way to get what he wants. 
And indeed, many bank robbers make a great deal of money and never get caught. And they start businesses and become members of the PTA. Um, there's got to be a way to teach them that you can wear a $150 suit without stealing it. And many of the clever criminals would be enormously successful in business, where many of their brethren operate within the law and every bit as viciously. And if they couldn't do that, they could become politicians. <laughs> That's right, yeah. That's right, because then theft is no problem at all. <laughs> well, no, the, uh, the requirement for any real moral standard disappears. One sort of shifts it to suit what the public is fancying that week, or at least this is my conception. Well, I think that may be a little bit cynical. It is a little bit cynical, yeah. but... Well, I, I think uh, you'd like to be a little bit cynical. No, I like to put the bite in every now and then because occasionally fellows put the bite into me and it's quite exchange. Uh, the trouble is that, as an old uh, uh, anarchist, I rather resent your using my rhetoric about the uh, <laughs> similarities between bank robbers and politicians. I feel very much deprived. <laughs> However, uh, it, is, it is, I think, uh, true that uh, there, is, there has been a discernible movement in social thought on the basis of which one never blames the criminal for anything at all. One blames uh, his mother or his father or the society or the Republican Party or, or whatever, <laughs> or the books he did read or, if not, the books he didn't read and, and so on. And uh, whereas all of that may be, uh, in a sense, true, if you assume uh, as an uh, etiological axiom that something causes everything, it's nevertheless true that as far as the society is concerned, the objective is to keep him from doing it again. And I think that there's, there's been a disproportionate amount of time given to that as distinguished from how shall we revise society so as to make it perfectly pleasing to Al Capone. No, you can't revise society to make it perfectly pleasing to Al Capone, although it might have been possible at one stage to teach him another way to mm. accumulate the same uh, advantages that he uh, took outside the law. It ought to occur to somebody, and uh, talk of excuses and blame doesn't really get us anywhere, but a lot of uh, uh, rather interesting and uh, proper feelings. I'm interested in reasons. If a man commits yeah. a crime, what's the reason? Because until you find out the reason and work on that, you haven't corrected but One of the reasons is that he may be a wicked man. Wicked people, as such, are rather rare in my experience, and I have opportunity to meet many, if indeed they exist. Uh, people who are unsuccessful sometimes horribly so when they commit murder, are much more common than wicked people. Wicked people are the witches that we used to burn in Massachusetts uh, 300 years ago when, <clears throat> with the revealed wisdom of some kind of Ouija board, uh, it was determined that a witch should be stoned to death or hung. Why do you know they weren't witches? Well, there's very little scientific uh, evidence to suggest that they were, but uh, it was fashionable at the time to attribute many of the maladies that were otherwise unexplainable to the work of witches. And yeah, but you're shifting the categories here now. I said that some people are wicked, and you've just given me a homily on the fact that the wicked people are a small percentage of the whole. I, I thank you for the homily. Let me repeat, there are some wicked people, right? And what do you do about them, and how do you spot them? There are wicked people in every phase of society, and probably a few more in, uh, in my day-to-day -day encounters than uh, in yours, perhaps. But... The word wickedness doesn't really help me much. It's like the word evil. Uh, every human being trots around with some purpose somewhere, and 
He thinks that what he is doing is going to make him happier than if he didn't do it. Otherwise, he wouldn't do it. Uh, starting with that premise, which is my own philosophy. Uh, yes, how do you isolate make him happy irrespective of what it does to other people? Certainly. But uh, people who... Uh, it, makes don't a, it makes a sadist happy to hit other people, right? It gratifies him because yeah. the sadist is sick. Yeah, that's right. He's twisted. That's right, yeah. All right. The only people that you might characterize as wicked are those that are simply doing what they're doing criminally because it's more convenient than to do it within the law. Uh, the people that I have no feeling for whatsoever are professional killers, for one. But I count that man as not much worse than a governor who won't commute a death sentence because it's unpolitical, even though he has grave doubts about the guilt of the man that's about to be buried beyond all the correction of the injustice. Well, I think that's a little slightly unjust as a comparison because there are governors who believe that the prerogative of commutation ought not likely to be exercised, that, uh, that, that he, he is there to implement what the legislators uh, thought. Gentlemen, was. we have a number of other points on which we'd like to touch after this brief interruption. Gentlemen, we have a number of questions that we would like to direct to you. They have been compiled by the firing line staff. Neither of Mr. Buckley nor Mr. Bailey has seen them prior to this time. I will direct specific questions to you, and if your opposite number has a comment or a rebuttal, please feel free to do so. We'll direct this first one to you, Mr. Bailey. What is your primary purpose in taking what are referred to as sensational cases? Is it uh, the money, notoriety, adventure, or what category does it fall into? There's no simple answer. Sometimes it's the challenge, sometimes it's the money, and sometimes it's uh, just being obstinate. I don't imagine that requires a rebuttal, does it, Mr. Ba Mr. Buckley? Or does it? No, I think he comes to you. We'll direct this question to you, sir. If a lawyer knew beyond question that his client was innocent, would he be acting properly, insofar as you're concerned, in falsifying evidence to prove that innocent? Now, we must assume that his client would otherwise be convicted? Well, I think I'd better give you the legal answer, since I see my attorney in the room. The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would not be so justified. He would have to make his representations by other means. Mr. Bailey, are there circumstances under which uh, an attorney can justify this? None. None whatsoever? None. All right. Let's direct this question to you. And again, Mr. Bailey, how do you rationalize the fact that you have gotten acquittals uh, for men that you knew to be legally guilty. There's only one case where that really happened in just the terms that you put it. Sometimes they get a conviction different in degree than that which might have been warranted if uh, the defendant had told his all. But in the one case where it happened, I tried desperately to put the man in prison, and uh, the state's attorney held out for a capital conviction, and uh, he shot for the moon and got nothing. In effect, then, it was the state's attorney who was... I think so. Uh, the judge encouraged him to take manslaughter. I tried to get him to do it. He wouldn't do it, so the fellow got convicted of simple assault, which is nothing. Do you have anything you'd like to add, Mr. Buckley? No, I don't. <clears throat> Mr. Buckley, is it... Uh, we will not... We will exclude Mr. Bailey from the answer to this, incidentally. Is it fair to judge lawyers by the clients they keep? For example, uh, is it fair to speak disparagingly of what we refer to as gangland or underworld lawyers. Well, let's start first with the question, is it um, reasonable 
sometimes certain things that are reasonable are not necessarily fair. Uh, I think that, that it is true that there are some people who specialize in defending people who are generally thought of as guilty. I don't, I don't think that uh, uh, the lawyers are entitled to rule as adamantly as they do, that only the jury has the right, finally, to establish whether a person is guilty or innocent in the eyes of the body public. I think the body public uh, is entitled to make its own determinations concerning the guilt or the innocence of a particular defendant, provided it has conscientiously searched the record. So that uh, uh, I am, I hope, just as free to say that I consider certain people guilty who, in fact, have been proven not guilty, as Mr. Uh, Bailey is, to say that he knows people to have been guilty whom he has sprung. I would like again, Mr. Bailey, to go back to our original point, and that is the, the reference to the attorney and the, quote, type of client he has and his associations with dubious characters. Well, I have very little time for the attorney who was on retainer by the syndicate to win cases however he can. These are the jury fixers and the manufacturers of perjured stories, and uh, uh, they should be disbarred if isolated. But the fact that one defends a large number of impopular clients is no indication that he is a bad citizen morally or that he has low ethics. And I'm sure that uh, Eddie Williams, if he stops trying Bobby Baker's case long enough to pick up this last comment, will feel his toes curl because despite the fact that many of his clients are unpopular, he is a, a man of very high standards when it comes to the practice of law, in my opinion. I'd like to direct this next question to you, Mr. Bailey. Mm -hmm. We would obviously... Well, may I just comment on that? Yes, sir. I, I didn't say that Mr. Williams is not a man of high standards concerning the practice of, of law. I think that's, a, uh, if I may say so, gratuitous. What I said has nothing to do with whether or not he has high standards. I'm not accusing Mr. Williams of fixing juries or the rest of it. I'm simply saying that I exercising my rights under the First Amendment, an amendment uh, the sanctity of which Mr. Williams has frequently stressed, am entitled to believe that the majority or X number or, or however number of people I want who are defended by Mr. Williams are, were in fact guilty as charged. And that under the circumstances when I see uh, a wedding between Mr. Williams and one of his clients, I tend to draw certain presumptions against the, uh, the, against the statement of which I conspicuously guard myself. But nevertheless, I'm just coming clean for you, Mr. Let me pursue that point further. Is it fair to uh, draw conclusions from that association? No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, it's very difficult to say that one feels it correct to reject the verdict of a jury because unless one has sat through the whole trial and heard the evidence as it unfolded, not as it appeared in the Daily News, one really doesn't know what one is talking about. You're referring to the Daily mm -hmm. News quotes or the Daily News as an overall medium? Take it either way. Either way. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bailey, we would expect to find among lawyers, generally speaking, a deep respect for law and quarterly process. Now, would it then be safe in assuming that most uh, lawyers who feel this way would then be political conservatives? No, I think not. Uh, I certainly uh, am not a... Well, no, not even a political conservative. I find many, many defects in the law, and I rail against the system and its inadequacy and its archaic aspects, and uh, I'm doing every bit that I can to change it. Mr. Buckley, anything to add? I, no, I don't think there's any, there's any uh, um, correlation there at all. I think that uh, uh, many people can be, for instance, very fastidious uh, uh, executioners or fastidious revolutionists, 
uh, and uh, that uh, their, their behavior in their own particular profession doesn't necessarily indicate their broader political allegiances. Mr. Buckley, in view of the fact that you have been involved in a number of very widely reported lawsuits, I wonder if you would uh, assess the relative importance of the lawyer and the merits of his case. Well, I speak as, uh, from a disadvantage since I happen to have the best lawyer in the entire world. <clears throat> so naturally he influences my judgment uh, on these matters. But uh, I think uh, that probably the principal difficulty is that uh, many kinds of laws, that many kinds of difficulties one gets into are evolving so that one never knows exactly what the Supreme Court is going to say concerning one thing or another. Mr. Bailey must have had the same difficulty. Yes, Mr. Bailey, that's true. Well, gentlemen, we thank you very kindly. We will be back in just a moment. Thank you again to all of the listeners who have helped us reach this 100th episode milestone. And of course, a huge thanks to Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast for also helping me get to this point. Great words of wisdom from the Colonel. Don't forget, you can find all of their episodes by downloading the Stitcher app. As a reminder, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I will also be dropping a new season of my Passion Case this spring. I will be re-airing episodes every Tuesday until then. Look for episodes to drop on Tuesdays once the new season launches. As always, if you enjoy this podcast and my other shows, you can help support them by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com, and that is slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. I will also provide a link in the show notes. I'm serious when I say every contribution, big or small, helps keep these slow burn podcasts running. And you can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to your favorite shows. Because those five stars, they actually help keep important cases that I cover, such as all the unsolved cases, in the spotlight. And if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as new shows that I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And again, thank you so much for helping me reach this 100th episode and tuning in this week so until next time be healthy and stay safe lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. 
Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. 